the concept of the green economy is nothing new. It's the idea of a world which progresses, builds and develops, whilst also avoids degrading and actually actively preserves our planet and our environment around us all. But what do we actually have to do right now in order to build that green economy of the future? How do you make that shift from our current economy to that of a green one, considering our ever more interconnected global systems? And how do we ensure it's done with everyone in mind? And, of course, everyone yet to come. Hello, welcome to the second series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer, podcaster and researcher, and I'm obsessed with how the world works. I'm constantly thinking about new discoveries and breakthroughs and the impact they have on the world we live in. We don't hear enough about how science and society intersect, despite the fact that building our future should only ever be a collective endeavour. So I'm always keen to unearth the hows, the whys and the whats of meaningful societal progress. The Institute of Physics is the British and Irish body that represents professional physicists and publishes groundbreaking research. In Looking Glass, we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better, having challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for our future world. This series is about the green economy of the future, not the near future. I'm talking about 50, 60, 70 years into the future. What will it look like? Is it even possible? What should we be doing right now to ensure there's a safe planet for our children's children? In series one about society, you'll remember Angela Saini not only discussed the climate crisis, but also who gets a seat at the table when policy for the future gets made. How do we make sure that everyone in the future is represented in the best possible way today? In this episode, we're going to start at the beginning of that safeguarding journey, asking how we become good ancestors, the kind who make the situation less dire for those still to come. I'm joined by two women whose work is truly trying to leave the world better than they found it. Sophie Howe is the world's first Future Generations Commissioner and her job is to give evidence and advice to the Welsh Government when they're making any decision that might affect people in the future, from today's children to the children born in 2100 and beyond. Dr Sukitra Sebastian is a quantum physicist at the University of Cambridge and her eyes are placed firmly on the future, not just through her students, but through a dedication to changing the way we see and operate in the world and in science. So when we talk about future generations, who do we really mean and how do we think about them? Sophie, I think that's a good one to kick off with you. We've got the concept of future generations set out in law, which I suppose is a, a useful starting point. And, uh, you know, our law and, well, the statutory guidance that sits with it talks about a generation as being about sort of 25 to, to 30 years. So I suppose as a minimum, we should be looking um, that far ahead, which um, we're not even doing that particularly well at the moment. But, you know, really it's infinite, isn't it? Roman Knarik, who wrote the book, The Good Ancestor, um, talks about the fact that if you look at 50,000 years to the past, there's about 100 billion people who've been um, alive and are now dead. There's about 7 billion or thereabouts alive now. But if we look 50,000 years into the future, based on current population growth trends, we're talking about 6.75 trillion people um, who will um, live during during that period. And the decisions that we take today, particularly at this sort of moment in time with things like the climate crisis, nature emergency and so on, are really critical to those kind of, you know, 6.75 trillion people who are the generations to come in 50 odd thousand years. 
And so, Chitra, I mean, you're thinking about big numbers when it comes to, uh, you know, quantum phenomena, right? How do you think about big numbers in terms of time or the future? You know, is that a different mindset in order to kind of situate what you're doing in this kind of weird to conceptualize area of time? Or is that something easier for a physicist? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's a really good um, way to um, bring in the idea that time is also a way in which it's important to think about this idea of, you know, Uh, ancestry, uh, future generations, previous generations. And I think the idea of time being um, in some ways analogous to space. So when we think about, you know, people who have gone before and people who are going to come after, I think it's also important to think about um, not just our own civilization or our own nation, as it were, in a way that often just in the way that we tend to think about people who exist in the now, we also tend to think about peoples and civilizations that exist just around us, so who are localized in space as well as in time. But, you know, if you think about the fact that our civilization is actually very young, and if you think about it, there were, you know, thousands of years of indigenous populations that went before us, And we do need to think about the fact that we're not all there is and we're not all that is going to be after us either or beyond us in space and geography. So I think this idea of thinking ahead is super important and also thinking beyond us in space. So we're just not thinking about, you know, in this year for the nation we're in, but far beyond that. And how do we think about priorities? Because I, I think there's different ways of, of um, trying to wrestle with this question of how do we conceptualise either people in different spaces or different times. So, for instance, you could say, well, obviously climate change is a big, a big issue. That's going to look very different for future generations. So how do we kind of imagine that and then work back? But then you could also kind of go a step further and go, well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been around for a long time and that's not going to change in, you know, in 200, 300 or whatever, how many hundred years time. So Sophie, how do you think about um, differing priorities? How do you conceptualise that and then work back to what we should do now? When you talk about futures, I think people often think of it as, you know, it's thinking about future trends and scenarios and how we respond to them. And, you know, are are there going to be, you know, driverless cars by 2030 or flying cars by 2040 and, you know, all of those quite kind of high tech uh, things in a way. But I think that, um, you know, the approach that we take is actually almost like a backcasting approach. So we've set seven national long-term wellbeing goals for Wales and um, they were devised in conversation with the people in Wales looking at um, future trends, looking at what was happening across the world, including the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But I think, you know, we often get challenged on the, um, and this is particularly, you know, in some developing countries where, they're saying, you know, the concept of future generations is all very well and good, but, you know, we've got massive challenges with our current generations and, you know, and how do we balance those things, investing for the long term versus investing um, in challenges that we've got now. And I would say to that, that I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. And the things that we should be doing in public policy terms are the things which are good for both current and future generations. So an example I often give is if we invest in improving the quality of people's homes, um, that's good for current generations. It'll take the thousands of people who are living in fuel poverty out of fuel poverty. It'll put money back into their pockets. 
Um, it will help to create jobs in those communities, so-called the green jobs that we're talking about um, a lot. Um, and that in turn, making sure that people have jobs, particularly if we target those jobs at those furthest from the labour market and those who are in poverty, has a massive long-term impact on people's health. And then you're also, um, so you're acting in the interest of sort of, you know, that generation of future generations to come in that sense, but you're also acting in the interest of future generations because you're decarbonising your housing stock, you're helping to um, tackle the climate emergency and so on. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it is how do you kind of think of them in tandem? I mean, the, the example that I always, um, I think when I heard it, it really changed my mindset a little bit in terms of how I think about um, what does it mean to progress? And I'm, I'm saying progress with inverted commas here, um, is, is when we think about, for instance, anti-aging and the, the sort of discussion around transhumanism and extension of life. And a lot of time, if you sit in very sciencey, techy kind of circles, these sort of idealistic circles, it's all about how do we get past the 80 years? How do we kind of change our physiology and our biology so that we can make it past this so-called or kind of idea of natural end to our life? But when you look at different kinds of, um, I guess, ethnicities, different geographies around the world and so on and so forth, well, the, dying at age 80 is actually quite is is out of reach for many populations. And so when you talk about extension of life, well, what about extending life beyond the age of 40? And suddenly this is not about physiology, but about health policy and all these other things. Yeah, I think the question you asked initially about, you know, in relation to physics phenomena, billions and billions of electrons interacting. So yes, you know, we should be used to this idea that we're a speck in the galaxy and we are entangled with um, life forms and um, humans that exist, you know, in time beyond us and space beyond us. And all of these lives are entangled together in a way that's actually inseparable. Um, and this is why we can't actually think of, say, developing countries in this box that's separate from developed countries. And I'm not entirely sure that developing countries are saying we can't think of the future when we have to think of the now. I think they might also be saying our future has been compromised by what developed countries have done already in the past and in the present. So how can we think of our now and our future without asking you to reflect on your past and your present and how that's entangled with the impact it has on us as, say, a developing country or a country that is in the global south that is distinct from countries we're in at the moment. And so I think that in order for each country to set its policy, it's not in the interest of either other countries or the country itself to think of itself in isolation without thinking about, say, if you were to set up a technology you call sustainable, is it having an impact on the environment of another country that might be not in your immediate geography? So you don't need to think about it immediately. However, even if you were to act in self-interest, at some point down the line, because time and space are entangled, that's going to come back to affect your own ecosystem in a way that is happening now. So how do we talk about this on different, on different levels, right? Because I think that this kind of conversation 
to some might feel a little bit abstract or far away. Sophie, I'd love to hear a little bit from you first and, and Suchitra as well, how we think about teaching people or bringing people along in this journey so that it's not this kind of paternalistic you need to change but rather making the case that it's it's better for all including yourself. Covid is a really good lesson in this really the fact that it's so at the front of everyone's minds now that actually you know yes we're doing brilliantly in terms of vaccinations and so on um, in the UK but um, you know we are only sort of, you know, safe if everyone else is safe, really. Um, and we've only solved it if everyone else has, has solved it. So that's the key answer to so many of the, the challenges we face. So connection between a global level um, decision making and, um, and action and so on. Connection between policy areas. This is a real bugbear of mine because, you know, we talk about climate change and we ch- tend to talk about, well, there's, you know, the environment department um, in government and they do climate change. Actually, it's far more important what the economy department do, what the transport department do, what the housing department do. Um, and they need to be seeing this as their um, as their business. I think, you know, we often talk about the kind of individual responsibility and the family responsibility. And I think that's often a good way of um, connecting um, people back to, um, to actions. But I think we also need to be quite careful with that um, in that government needs, governments and politicians need to be showing that leadership and not just saying, oh, it's all down to, to individual actions. Because whilst we're all busy recycling, that sort of waste is only a tiny um, contribution to the climate, um, to the climate tr- crisis. And the much bigger um, issue is why do we still see um, our governments, our local authorities and so on, still invest in their pension funds in fossil fuels? Um, why are we still seeing um, the majority of government investment in infrastructure going into constructing roads? You know, it's those sorts of things. Those are the real kind of big ticket um, items. It's also, I think, a little bit of a patronising idea that it's too complicated to tell people the system story and we can't campaign on complicated ideas like, you know, that that intersect many different departments. We have to have these simple policies that people can get on board with. And I think you're right about bringing up COVID is, you know, I haven't heard supply chain mentioned on the news anything like as many times in my entire life as I haven't had in the last year. And I think this understanding of interconnected systems has massively gone up. And I'd be surprised if people who at the end of the day are, are giving their votes to people, um, are not expecting and demanding an understanding and a presentation of system effects that the government are really wanting to put in. Maybe I'm being idealistic, but I think that shifting away from these simple ideas of fixes is certainly something the public are a bit more involved with. Um, so Chitra, I'd love to hear a little bit from you. What do you think we should do in terms of this teaching these ideas and talking about it more? I think that scientists need to be consider themselves as embedded in society in a way it might be convenient for them not to do at this point of time. And it also might be convenient for policymakers to keep this distinct, because I think there's a convenience that comes out of saying to scientists, okay, work out this formula, come up with this technology, and then don't worry your pretty little heads, we'll take care of how it's used. We've seen the devastation this can cause, from when um, the atom bomb was created. And scientists like to imagine that they're not culpable for how it was used. I would disagree. And I would say, um, yes, none of us has clean hands. However, we are culpable in how what we are involved in is actually being used, is being translated into society. 
So I think that science and policy need to be much closer. And I think scientists need to think about the physics they work on. And sure, you know, we all love curiosity-driven science. My entire research is based on, you know, discovering new quantum phenomena. Um, And I think this is at the heart of why we do science. But also, we do science because we're human. That is why we're curious. And being human makes us part of a society in which we do need to think about what allows us to have that privilege to be curious, to, you know, to think of our place in the universe. It is being able to live in an environment that is that that does give us the ability to have clean water, clean air, not live in places that are under siege, for instance. And so if we think more broadly in this sense, I think we then realize that responsibility means we can't shy away from difficult conversations about what are the good uses of this technology? What are the negative uses of this technology? What do we want to prioritize? And I think our voices need to be at the table. If you're thinking of countries in the global south, if you're thinking of future generations, we need to have young people. We need to have people who are connected with other societies. We need to have um, women and we need to recognize that allyship is great, but we need representation in order for everyone's voices to be heard. How do we get not just other people and other voices, but other disciplines and ideas into science? Because science, if you think about your usage about scientists in general day to day, especially if you're in a lab, you know, turning test tubes and, and then coding for a bit and writing up, the idea of thinking about, I don't know, philosophical ideas or policy ideas or campaigning or, or anything is not necessarily going to come into your day to day. It's probably going to be more in your in your home life or what you listen to at lunch, like a podcast or something. Right. So what does it mean to embed more diversity of not just people, but thought and proposals and ideas and multidisciplinary thinking into the practice of doing science as a whole? Um, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Particularly, it's something that is very close to me. So, uh, for instance, I founded um, an art science program at um, Cambridge, which is, it's not just about, you know, showing science in artistic ways. It's not about that at all. Rather, it's bringing together disciplines to think about bigger questions. At the heart of it is the idea that every discipline brings to bear different tools to tackle these big questions of curiosity. Who are we? What is our place in the universe? What does it mean to live in um, harmony with the rest of the universe? What does it mean to think about the future? And I think sometimes scientists like to think of very specific questions that they can answer with their tools that are measurable that are clearly definable, that are quantifiable. But I think when I think about bringing together the arts and sciences, the reason I think about this is because these are questions that are not just measurable and definable. These are questions we need to think about exactly as you say, 
from a philosophical point of view about, you know, say emergence, when I talk about quantum emergence, this is also a principle that exists in philosophy, that exists in um, biology, that exists in art about this idea of entanglement and all the different components being entangled together. And so bringing together disciplines in that way, I think one, scientists, I think, need to acknowledge that in order to view an issue holistically, we do need to think about it using all possible tools from different disciplines. And sometimes I think that science imagines that it is the holder of the truth or the facts and the absolute facts. And yes, there are certain measurable quantities that we can define very precisely. But when we talk about climate change and sustainability and the environment, there is a lot more to do with how do we imagine our relation to the universe, to the rest of the universe, that is not just measurable in a laboratory. I think it's it's an interesting question to think about what what is the role of science when it scientists when it comes to to government and decision making? So what Suchitra, you were just saying there about thinking about trying to answer big questions around how do we quote unquote solve climate change? It, we've seen this with COVID, right? This idea of following the science and we got the answer from the scientist and saying you know should we go into lockdown? It's not really a scientific question. It can be informed by different ways of doing science. But it's a, it's a policy question, it's a societal question that has science embedded in it. So, Sophie, I'd love to hear a little bit from you about this. The connection between science um, and evidence um, to government policies um, are not, is not always that, um, that clear. And there are a few reasons um, for that. Um, I often talk about the kind of, um, you know, the, the policymaking uh, speedboat um, versus the... Um, you know the, the 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 rowing boat of um, of science, so it takes forever to get a kind of response, and politics moves quickly from day to day, um, and so often the timeliness of the sort of evidence coming forward is is a challenge. Often the evidence that comes forward. Um, won't give you an answer to the question. Um, it'll say that more research is is needed. I, under, yeah. you know, I, under, I understand that. <laughs> more um, funding, please, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and often the answer that comes is not within the parameters of political possibility, if you like. Now, so there's a there's a kind of conflict and a challenge, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, you absolutely need scientists, um, you know, telling telling governments how how it is. Um, on the other hand, sometimes what might be more useful is scientists lending their brain to governments and to politicians and policymakers in terms of this kind of more open discussion about you know potential scenarios. So if this is the you know if this is the the, the gold standard answer, um, but actually we've only got a budget for a, a bronze uh, standard approach, then how do we bring those things together to create the best possible scenario? And I don't think those sorts of discussions happen um, very often. So I, I think that that kind of, you know, uh, a sort of trusted relationship between politicians and, um, and scientists and a safe space to discuss and explore, I think, is, um, is quite important. I think the other um, challenge in terms of, of science, and um, Shuchitra was um, sort of alluding to this really, is this, that often it's not multidisciplinary. So um, you will get um, quite a narrow answer 
Um, and it's, you know, that's not that might get us to solve one problem, but it might end up creating other problems. And so I think, you know, as Shuchitra said, we need to start from the perspective of what is it that we're trying to achieve? What's our, what's the aim or the outcome? Is it a singular outcome or actually are we looking for kind of multiple outcomes? Is there an example of that playing out in politics that you could tell us about, Sophie? There's a great example around um, electric vehicle infrastructure. If your singular outcome is to decarbonise um, mobility and transportation, then ele- investing in electrical vehicles, um, uh, infrastructure and grants for people to buy them and so on and so on is probably quite a sensible idea. However, if your goal is not just to decarbonise your transportation system, but like we have in Wales, to have a Wales of more cohesive and connected communities where people interact with each other. Um, If your goal is to have a healthier um, country um, and tackle the obesity crisis, actually, we don't want to see people sitting in their electric vehicles rather than their diesel vehicles. And if your goal is to have a more equal country, actually investing in electric vehicles is a really bad plan because um, the poorest uh, people in our society can't afford diesel vehicles and they certainly can't, won't be able to afford electric vehicles. So if you look at that, those multiple aims um you know your singular singular response to electric vehicles is the answer to decarbonize our transportation system is a bad is a bad response because it may be doing that singular thing but it's missing opportunities to improve other areas um, or it's actually working against um, improving other areas. So that's where it's so critical, I think, that science is multidisciplinary, both in terms of the, the kind of policy context and this wider context that we're talking about. I want to somehow summarise this incredibly mind-bending and very broad conversation we've had to try and bring it back to this idea of the now, because the only way that we can be good ancestors for future generations is to think about our current behaviour, right? And I think that is one of the biggest um I guess, hurdles that we have to get over instead of pushing it off and saying, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. It is about what do we do now as individuals, but as well as as, as governments and as collective societies. Um, so Sophie, I'm going to start with you. And again, I don't want to bring this conversation back to what do we do as individuals? How do we recycle? But rather maybe a little bit on how do we think about these things without being overwhelmed, without thinking that, you know, for a lot of people, particularly climate change can be a a very um, horrible thing to think about in many different ways, very overwhelming, very, um, very easy to be defeatist about it. How do we start thinking about these, solving these big systemic global problems ahead of us? What can we do today? There are things that we can do locally and that we are doing in, in in many cases that we're sort of doing naturally. So I often think about, you know, things like the circular economy and the big rise in things like, you know, Facebook has got its own challenges, but Facebook marketplace and the, the swapping that's going on there, the school uniform swap shops, the, um, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, those things are happening, which are, you know, good in terms of the environment. They're good in terms of people making connections and making new friends and so on. So I think that, you know, we do need to be more open to those sorts of things and to be thinking about, um, you know, how can we 
use some of this technology for good because i and i think that that is you know intrinsic in people i think it's people who will start finding ways to use some of this stuff for good you know things like the good run go on your jog to keep um healthy um and also drop off a pint of milk to um, mrs jones who's in her 80s um you know that's an easy thing to do there's the technological kind of platform there to there to do it um think about you know how we might be able to embed kind of, you know, community fridges or um, repair shops or all of these sorts of things. They're good for that sense of community and for your individual um, well-being and they're good for for planet. But that shouldn't get um, us away from that holding to account. And I think we need to, as citizens, we really need to be questioning our government on, you know, how have you considered my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren in what you're planning to do um, in terms of X, Y or Z um, policy or what your whole approach will be. You know, I I look at somewhere just um, a few miles up the road from me um, in the South Wales Valleys who prior, you know, we were in a crisis there um, before the COVID crisis hit and that was a crisis of, of flooding where people's livelihoods were decimated, um, you know, homes were destroyed um, and so on and so on. And it's going to impact on those who are the poorest um, in that community who were the ones who couldn't afford the uh, to buy the home insurance and so on. And yet the local authority in that area are the biggest investor in fossil fuels in their pension funds. So on the one hand, they are um, you know, going to be spending hundreds of millions of pounds to try and address this problem caused by the climate emergency. And on the other hand, they're still putting um, a shed load of their money from pension funds into the problem itself, into, you know, carrying that problem on. So we've got to kind of come together to expose some of those things and we've got to be holding our politicians to to account on them. So Chichar, I want to come to you to hear a little bit about it from the from the scientist perspective. And again, it's it's this question of what is it that the we, you as scientists in the science related community um can do today to really help shift some of these mindsets think about using I don't want to say using science for good it sounds so trite but really thinking about you know there is potential for huge awesome change to come um if we do it in a way that's that's mindful so tell us a little bit about how you think about the now in my immediate now it would be a lot about the way in which science is done and how science can be um, part of a bigger solution that benefits society and not just some small fragment of society. I think that at the moment, science is done in quite, um, it has historically followed on from quite um, imperialistic, conquest-driven way of doing science that's very individualistic, that is very extractive, which is where we've got these technologies about we take something out of the earth and make it into something that benefits us. And this is fine because in a lot of ways, that's how um, modern civilization came into being from appropriating something that wasn't ours. Um, But I think that this does not have to be the way science is done. And I would look forward to a way science is done that is more inclusive And that is more collaborative where we recognize we don't have to make a finding at the expense of someone else not making a finding. There is so much that is unknown about the universe that we're 
curious about that is amazing and inconceivable to our imagination out there that we should be working together and thinking about an ecosystem in which um, we're part of this amazing sort of, you know, journey of adventure and discovery. So one, I would say that about the way science is done. And also this is strongly connected to, as we were talking about earlier, the way young people are taught and educated about, you know, coming together. And if we want to tackle solutions, we have to come together. So we need to start coming together in the doing of the science if we are to come together in the tackling of society's problems. And science isn't suddenly going to change itself and become this, you know, um, this entity that is now able to integrate itself into society and think holistically if it's having trouble even doing that internally. So we need to rethink how science is done internally for it to be able to also be outward looking and embed itself in society and contribute um, to society. So Chitra, I think that's a lovely note um, to end on. And thank you so much for joining me um, to chat all things good ancestry and green economy. Thanks very much, Sophie. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks both. Thanks very much to my guests this week, Sophie Howe and Dr. Suchitra Sebastian. We'll be back next week to dive into the big ticket item, energy. But in the meantime, you can still catch up with the first series of Looking Glass. Author and journalist Angela Saini hosts conversations on some of the most challenging aspects of our society, including whether a more inclusive scientific establishment is even possible and if the physics community can offer sustainable solutions for the climate crisis. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Kera. Original music and sound mix by Alex Portfelix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless. Mm-hmm.